Take your copy of the Bible and turn to Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48, as we turn to hear from heaven. This is God's Word. It was written long ago, but because our God lives outside of time and space, he wrote it with you in mind as well as all of the other saints that have heard this in the past. Hear God's Word for you today. Hear this, O house of Jacob. Who were called by the name of Israel, and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city, and they stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them, and they came to pass, because I know that you're obstinate, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them, my carved image and my metal image commanded them. You've heard. Now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today you've never heard of them, lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. You've never heard. You've never known. From of old your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I've refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profane? My glory I will not give to another. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel whom I called, I am he. I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. And he shall perform his purpose on Babylon. And his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me. Hear this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secret and From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his Spirit. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit 
who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river. And your righteousness like the waves of this sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Go out from Babylon, free from, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Let's pray. Father, would you give life and light? Your word is perfect, but we are not. Would you please give us faith and even repentance for Christ's sake? Amen. We're entering into uh, really the heart of the American political calendar as now we enter into uh, the run-up, the dreaded run-up for the presidential election next year. It's really a miserable process, I think, most of the time, as it's largely, uh, really, I think, probably a show without much substance behind it, but one of the parts I think that I dread the most, or dislike uh, the most, or like the least, pick your grammar, is this kind of process where they try to compare the record of whoever's in office now with the imaginary record of the person who will then come into office next, potentially. It's the most wonderfully ludicrous process of asking the person in office now, what have you done for me lately? And asking the person who will potentially be in office next, what will you do for me then? And the interesting thing is, the answer is always the same. We know this. If you've been in the room and you're maybe my age or a little bit older, you know the answer is always the same. It's lies. It's always lies. And it's this spectacular process of comparing lies. Right? What have you done? Well, I'm not going to tell the truth about that. And what are you going to do? Well, I'm not going to tell the truth about that. And so we have this wonderful process of trying to examine the realities of change with no realities on the table to actually use in the decision. It's an imaginary conversation taking place in the real world with imaginary realities and not true facts. But it does really center on kind of one major question in the American political sphere, which is, what have you done for me lately, or what will you do for me next? It shows in so many ways the heart of the American experience and the American culture is that it's all about you doing for me. That's really what all of American politics is right now. It's figuring out how we can trick people into voting for me. What are you going to do for me? I want you to vote for me. What am I as a politician going to do for you? Well, I'll give you the things that will make you vote for me. It's, it's this wonderfully grand, um, selfish exchange. How can I profit the most? The problem becomes with that, though, is that uh, we think of our presidential elections that way or our gubernatorial or whatever else. The danger is when we then begin to read that back onto our relationship with God. 
where we look at our present and say, well, what have you done for me lately? Or the next person, man or woman that might be, what will you do for me lately? And the danger is that we then come back to the Scriptures and then look at God that way and say, well, God, what have you done for me lately? What have you done for me lately? How have you improved my life? How have you made my life better? I still don't have all the things that I want. I'm still this creature consumed with desires that are still as of yet unmet. I want this, I want that, I want this, I want that, I want this, I want that. I don't have them yet. What have you done for me lately? Well, Isaiah 48, hopefully, will give us a little bit of uh, an answer to that. It's certainly not the most comprehensive uh, answer in the entirety of the Scriptures, but it, it does, in some sense, address that kind of question as there's a significant movement in the passage as it begins with that kind of starting point of what the human condition is and so many of us have so easily forgotten about, and it ends with what God moves us into. It really kind of takes this process of what we look like at the beginning of our walk with God and what He then moves us into, the growth of the Christian life. Right, and it starts with really a kind of four pieces of the human condition apart from God or what then oftentimes shows up when we're first newly converted, the things we struggle with, the lingering corruptions of the flesh. Verses one and two, it's not an encouragement here that God is speaking to his people this way. Hear this, O house of Jacob. We would like that. This is good. God speaking to us, using the name of his people, the proper name to call them by. They belong to him. Those who are called by the name of Israel. Yay, again, God speaking of his people. We like this. He's speaking about us positively. Terms of endearment and affection. Those who came from the waters of Judah. Oh, good. Him referring to even his miraculous acts in the past to save us. Those who swear by the name of the Lord. Now, this is into an Old Testament clause that probably we don't think about often enough here, but uh, in Old Testament language, vows were kind of the pinnacle of piety. If you wanted to talk about the the sum totality of what it meant to walk with God, vows were kind of the the portrait of the, the pinnacle of that relationship. That's one of the reasons you have the Nazarite vow, kind of that marker of exceptional piety and love for God. So here, these, again, a good term, those who swear by the name of the Lord, those who are identifying by our bonded relationship with God that we have vows to Him and we're endeavoring to keep them. Those that confess the God of Israel, we we proclaim our name, His name as ours. We belong to Him. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. That last clause, though, man, and changes an entire verse. Had one little subordinate clause, one little phrase. These people that swear by the name of the Lord, those that confess the God of Israel, but do not do it in truth or in right. Already he's addressing those that call themselves after the holy city, verse 2, those that are, are, are proclaiming that they rest upon God, but in reality, do not. Those that would identify 
as God's people, but perhaps do not or even more so might instead struggle with hypocrisy. The, the great kind of challenge of the church Those that want to proclaim themselves to be Christians, those that want to be a part of the club, those that want to to be a part of the activity, that want to be a part of the community, that want to build their friendships and perhaps even identify and anchor their minds in some of the truths of Scripture. But the reality is not what it seems for these people. The substance is lacking. It's, It's not all the way through. It's not true and real. You see, what's being addressed here in God's people in uh, Isaiah 48 verses 1 and 2 is this struggle with appearing one way, but having something much worse beneath the surface. You see, remember, if you've been paying attention over the sermon series now for almost a year, This is a time in Israel's history in which they were still actively proclaiming themselves to be God's beloved people. They were actively identifying as God's children, but they didn't know Him, they didn't love Him, they didn't obey Him, they didn't follow Him. Whenever they ran into trouble, they looked for the pagan nations to help them. They were constantly trying to structure deals and negotiations with either Egypt or with uh, other enemies in an effort to protect themselves. It was a thing in which their kind of Old Testament religion was something that existed in style but not in substance. Right? It looked good on the outside, but when it actually kind of went to pass the test, it couldn't. It's like if you ever uh, have this wonderful experience, I remember kind of being a kid and the first time it happened where you, uh, you go and you, you go to the sandwich shop, you get your sandwich and your chips and a drink, and it's absolutely wonderful, and you, you sit down, you eat your sandwich, and you, you get your bag of chips that looks fantastic, right? It's about this big, and you're like, man, I'm hungry. I'm, I'm so excited to have some chips. And you bust open your Doritos, and you pour them out on the napkin, and all four chips look good. <laughs> right? All four of them. You're like, man, that was really well spent $2.29 to upgrade to the combo. It better be the best four chips I've ever had. It looks good on the outside. It looks appealing. It's, it's large. It's well-packaged. It's not damaged. The, the logo's designed well. The art looks pretty, uh, really perfectly fluffed up with air. And you're like, man, this is great. I'm excited. Style over substance. Perhaps worse yet, when you were a kid, you went into the uh, store and you're like, oh, I'm so excited. Uh, I'm going to get a soft serve ice cream cone. You ever have this one? The, they hand you the ice cream cone, and you're excited. It's got all that ice cream, right? Sit there on top of the cone, and once that ice cream's pushed away, the cone's empty. I, again, I paid two twenty nine for that much ice cream on the top of a cone. Style over substance. When you look beneath the surface, it's just not there. It's it's empty. It's lacking. Those that confess the name of God, but not in truth or in right. Now, this is a a reality that I think the church still struggles with, particularly the church in the South still struggles with, where so much of the DNA of the culture in which we've lived is one where everybody kind of professes Christ in some fashion, 
Right? Growing up in the Charlotte area, man, everybody was a Christian, even if they didn't go to church, hated God, and didn't read the Bible, even if they didn't care at all. They, well, I'm a Christian because I live in Charlotte, obviously, obviously. When you go to have conversations about salvation, salvation is, it was answered geographically, not theologically. Well, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, I have a church that I've been in before. Oh, wow, Okay. Good on you. It's a problem of geography. I I know my parents go to church. I've been to that church once or twice before. At least I know the building. Again, I've I've joked with you about this before. It's one of my favorite things where a really easy way to defeat that kind of answer from folks. Where I say, oh, I'm so excited. Who's the pastor there? That's my favorite question. Because most of the time, they'll, they'll be able to remember his first name because he's chummy in the pulpit, and they'll be like, oh yeah, it's Pastor Michael. And I'm like, this is my favorite. I'm like, oh, that's great. What's his last name again? And you can tell it's amazing, right? That whole salvation by geography problem suddenly gets very uncomfortable because they're like, uh, I I don't know. So you've been going to that church for eight years, and you don't know the pastor's name. I suspect you haven't been going to that church for eight years. Maybe eight times. I'm not sure. You see, this is, again, kind of part of the DNA of, of the way we like to think in our flesh, the way we like to think about salvation, is that it's something that can be reduced to style over substance, something that can be reduced to image or appearance, something that can, and if you haven't figured this out, remain external, not internal. It's something that stays out there. And you know why we like to keep salvation out there? Is because when it's out there, it's safe. It, it doesn't make any demands on me. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't impact my heart. It doesn't change my emotions. It doesn't tell me you have to stop or you have to change. You have to be different. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't actually impact me at all. That's the starting point in Psalm for, I mean, Isaiah 48, and uh, dear children in the church, I would say, you are the ones that I worry about the most for this. Having grown up in the place of God with the people of God, hearing the words of God, to say, I am one of those that is called by the name of the Lord, but never know him. Oh, dear children. Please do not be that person. Instead, have those conversations with your parents. Have those conversations with your pastor, with your elders. Please learn to know and love the Lord. Starts with style over substance. Follows with the next great American trait. Stubbornness. Something none of us in this church struggle with. I'll just skip this passage. I still like my job. I'd like to be able to pastor here next week too. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Why? Why did God do it this way? Because I know. I know exactly who you are, Israel. Obstinate, stubborn people. If you didn't get that image, we'll give another one. A neck where the sinews have been replaced with iron and a forehead of brass. Thick-headed, mule-headed, stubborn. Pick your image, your illustration, whichever one you wish. And I'm going to tell you right now, 
I, I would bet good money most of us in the room are already thinking about somebody else in the room. And it's not us that we're thinking about. Right? Almost all of us are in here are going, I know what stubbornness is. You should be pointing at yourself. That's the problem, right? This is, this is the exact problem we're dealing with. We go to hear the downsides of sin. We, we go to hear the descriptions of what sin looks like, and we're already like, oh, yeah, it's that guy. It's that guy. I know that guy. Not this guy. It's this wonderful amnesia that we have towards our own selves. Forget all of the struggles that we have. It's staggering how quick it can happen to, right? You can be crying, you're so upset at some problem in your life, and like 12 seconds later, somebody can make you angry, and you're like, yep, that was the problem, it's them right there. I knew it was them. How quickly? Three and four lay out this stubbornness, a portrait of a people that are unwilling to listen to their God. So now you've started out with style over substance. It's not a reality that's gripped their heart and their lives. It's then manifesting in a, in a, a, a stiff neck where they're impossible to lead. Hard to lead. Hard to lead. In verse 5, still committed to idolatry in some form. I declared... I declared them uh, to you from of old before they came to pass. I announced them to you so that you wouldn't say, my idol did them. My carved image, my metal image commanded them. Now, this is one that you would think, well, we're not doing that here. I mean, we're not the kind of people. I mean, last I checked, none of us, I've been in most of your homes, uh, none of us in here have like shrines of idolatry on the side. Maybe a couple, but not many, right? But it's interesting, actually, the problem is not simply the existence of idols, it's what we do with them, which is we take the things that God does and we give credit to other things. Notice that's actually what's happening in verse 5. I told you in advance what I was going to do because I know your heart, and I know what happens is when I do something for you, you point the finger at someone else. And those fingers point in only two directions. If it's something good, who do you point the finger at? And if it's something bad, who do you point the finger at? It's easy. And the Lord's calling that out and saying, look, I know who you are. I know how you act. I know you. I told you all this in advance so that when you do start the uh, finger-pointing game, It would be ridiculous because I warned you that it was happening. The fun part is, is staggeringly, some of you in the room are still thinking of other people. Some of you are still going like, I know, can you believe he's doing that? Right? Can you believe it? Yes, you're doing it right now! You're like, well, I've got this all handled, right? I'm, I mean, I'm good. I got this one all handled. I mean, I know they struggle with that, but I'm fine. It's all right. Verses six to eight make it, it just even worse. Because now he's dealing not just with the style over substance. He's dealing not just with stubborn people. He's not dealing just with those that, that are blame shifters. 
But if you have somehow managed to dodge all three of those, one, you probably have no idea what you're talking about, but if you have, you're almost certainly in the last category. A spectacular know-it-all. That's what's happened in verse 6 to 8. You have heard. Now see all this. You're going to talk about it? You're going to declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you didn't know. They're created now not long ago, before today. You've never heard of them. Why did I do it this way? Why am I hiding things from you and then showing to them now? Because otherwise, I know what's going to happen is you're going to say, I already knew it. I already had all this figured out. I had it down pat. I knew all of it. I know it all. In reality, you actually didn't know. Verse 8, your ears were not yet opened. Your eyes were not yet opened. You, you didn't have this truth, but we're know-it-alls. Now again, problem is that we're still thinking about other people in the room, are we? Oh man, I know that person. They drive me nuts. Trying to talk with them is just, ooh, it's like nails on a chalkboard. They're know-it-all. It just drives me crazy that when I know something, they think they know better. You catch that, right? That when I know it, they know better. My know-it-allism is better than their know-it-allism because they're wrong and I'm right. I don't know if you kind of caught the trajectory of all of these, but it's largely just a commitment to self. It's a commitment to my thoughts. It's a commitment to my emotions. It's a commitment to my plans. It's a commitment to my paths. It's a commitment to me. This is a person that is filtering all of creation through the me matrix so that everything gets filtered by me so that everything becomes about me. It's the person that everything impacts me. It's all about me. I'm the center of the world. Well, now, obviously, that's not really the design of things. It's not the way it's supposed to be. God is the one who is to be center of the world. And so in the end of the chapter, we see, actually, he is this God of change. And for his people who are called by his name, those that are his beloved children, those that have their name written in the Lamb's book of life, he does change them. He changes them from those selfish people, stylistically selfish, stubbornly selfish, blame-shifted, credit-giving selfish, know-it-all selfish, to something very different. Look at his answer, this change. It starts in verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, Israel whom I called. All right, here's your answer, right? Israel, this is your answer. This is how change is going to be. This is what it's going to look like. I am he. No, it's not actually about you at all. I am the first. I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth My right hand spread out the heavens when I call them. They stand forth together. It is about me, not you. You see, it's interesting that God's solution uh, to this kind of uh, 
selfishness, this deep-seated selfishness, this all-consuming, pervasive, poisonous selfishness begins with kind of forcing our chin up and forcing our eyes to shift from the lay of the land that impacts me to focus on the God who made me. To think about God. To be preoccupied with God, to be captivated with the Lord. Why? Because He is the mover. He's the one who's begun all things. He is the one who will end all things. He is the one who has created the earth. He is the great and mighty God. And some of you are sitting here, he's going, well, I know that, Michael. Yes, I know. I already talked about the know-it-allism in the beginning. I know that. Of course you know that. We all know that. That's why we're here. We know that God made the world. We know that God made us. We know that God's in charge. That's why we're here. But yet, for some of us, that is a truth that is stylistically true, but not substantially true. What that means is it's a truth that we believe with our head, but it's not a truth that impacts our hearts or our hands or our mouths. In fact, it would look a little bit like this. The kind of person who perhaps even reads their Bible in the morning, maybe spends some time in prayer while they drive to or from work or before meals or things like that. But on their daily life, when it comes down to it, brass tacks, their life is actively spent trying to fulfill their pleasures. People that irritate them, removing those, you know, I don't have time for that burden in my life. Things that hurt our feelings, I don't have time for those challenges in my life. Inconveniences, I don't have time for those in my life. Ain't nobody got time for that. I'm trying to make my world all about me a better place to live. And it's interesting that the correction, the antibiotic, the the, the chemo, the, the healing solution is to turn our heads up and to stop paying attention to ourselves quite so much. Quite so much. Well, it doesn't stop there. Four problems, four solutions. 12 and 13, it's God is the mover. Turn our eyes up to look at Him, 14 through 16. Then as we look at Him, to listen to His Word. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves me. That look, God spoke. Now here he begins to work through uh, the coming of Cyrus with the Medes and the Persians that will eventually uh, overthrow the Babylonians and destroy them, the Babylonians having destroyed the Assyrians. But what God's getting at is, look, I've spoken these things, and the solution to this selfishness, this hypocritical, stubborn, idolatrous selfishness, the solution to this know-it-allism is to sit comfortably and quietly beneath the Word of God and listen. Not to build our head knowledge so that our know-it-allism gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, but instead to sit beneath the Word of God so that it teaches us so that we are more submissive and more submissive and more submissive. I do think it's intriguing that so much of kind of American Christianity, that, that the attribute that we value the most is spine. 
Right? We, we, we spine. We're, we're looking for people with spine. We want pastors with spine. We, we want this kind of stand-up strength and conviction and such. And I find it intriguing that for, I would say, probably most of the church, for most of church history, that's not been the case. We valued humility. The church has valued suffering. The church has valued being poverty, you know, a poverty of spirit, having a poverty of spirit, meekness, repentance, suffering. Those that are submissive at their core, not stubborn. You see, it's interesting, those things are in so many ways mutually exclusive. That if we're going to be stubborn creatures, it's very, very hard to be a stubborn creature while being submissive to the Word. It's very difficult to do that. Because almost certainly what will happen, almost certainly what will happen, is you will think you're being submissive to the Word, and you think you will be stubborn about your convictions, and what you will do is you'll be holding the right positions in the wrong ways. Almost certainly. What you will do is you'll be taking the right truths and fighting for them in the wrong ways. It's what breeds internet jerks, right? They find the right truth and then they go fight online and be rude and hateful and spew all sorts of villainy towards all other people who are made in the image of God. Instead of humility, a willingness to listen. And that's been said and observed often, it's not just true about people, but Americans particularly, is that we usually only pause in conversation, pause talking long enough to let the other person start talking so we can formulate our own thoughts. And we, don't, we don't actually listen. We just, I just use your words as a chance to figure out how I want to say mine. You use my words as an opportunity to figure out how to say yours. It's, it's not about listening to anything or anyone or even God himself. It's about figuring out how I can talk more and better. All right, so acknowledging God is the one who's sovereign and in charge over all things, then submitting ourselves actively beneath his word, intentionally committing ourselves uh, not just uh, to the truths of his word, but the way in which those truths are held to be obedient and fullness of grace. Interesting, verses 17 through 19, what kind of God is he? Well, he's the Lord who brings about peace. Verse 17, this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I'm the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, teaches you the way that you should go. If you would just listen to what I said, this is my paraphrase in verse 18, if you just listen to what I said, your life would have been filled with peace. But no, you did it your way. Thank you, Frank Sinatra. Right? You're so committed to doing things your way. You're so committed to your own ideas. You're so committed to you. You missed out on the kind of God that I am, which is the God of peace. Then your peace would have been like a river, your righteousness like waves of the sea, your offspring have been like the sand, your descendants like its grains, your name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. You would have peace. Now, at this point in history, this is largely being connected to a nation of Israel, but is that promise limited only? Well, no, because our God does not change. His character does not change. 
That if we are those people that are committed to sitting beneath His Word and to listen and obey as He has said, we will be, we already read this in Matthew 5, peacemakers. Those that are constantly affiliated with peace. And then lastly, what does all this kind of do? Well, it's because God Himself is the Redeemer. 20 and 21, we get to see this where it's uh, all of this is possible. Why? Well, the Lord is the redeeming, the redeemer of his people. He's redeeming his people. He's using Cyrus to do it at this point in history, but that's going to then be transformed not ultimately in Cyrus, some pagan king, but in the Lord Jesus himself. He is our redeemer. And look at verse 21. I love this. All of these kind of Christological kind of foreshadowings. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He's the water of life. He made water flow for them from the rock. That rock is Christ. He split the rock and water gushed out of you. These wonderful kind of Christological foreshadowings that ultimately all of this is accomplished in Christ Jesus. Now the reality is, is I think many of us in here would kind of go, okay, uh, Michael was kind of on it at the beginning of the sermon. Right? He's talking about that style over substance. He's talking about that stubbornness. He's talking about kind of giving credit in false places and maybe no atollism. And I might be willing to concede that he had me on one of those. Not all four, but maybe I'll concede one. It's more than one, but I'll, I'll take that for now. I'll, I'll, I will negotiate that. I will accept one. And probably if you're sitting there, you're thinking, oh, I'd really like that kind of latter part of the sermon. It's my favorite part. I like the idea that God's taking care of me. I love the idea that he's giving me his word. It helps me how to live. I love the idea of having peace everywhere. I love that. And for those of you that are in, you know, embroiled in some sort of nasty conflict, the idea of real peace is very appealing. The interesting thing is actually the two verses or three verses I skipped, isn't it? It's actually the thing that he tells us is he is our redeemer, but there is one very specific mechanism that he uses to get rid of the me monster, right? The me monster does not die on its own. It does not die easily. It does not go away easily. And instead, he uses one very specific tool to get rid of the me monster in his people's lives. Verses 9, 10, and 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. I'm not going to take care of my people. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. It's for my name's sake. I'm not going to cut you off. Verse 10. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have, in the better translation here, is probably chosen, not tried. I've chosen you even out of the furnace of affliction. And I do it for my own name's sake. Why? Because God will not let his name be profaned by our character. He's not going, I I love this concept. He loves us so much, and he loves his own name so much, he will not let us be a dumpster fire forever. He's not going to let us stay a hot mess forever. You may want to be that for a time but you're going to be fighting against God because he is committed to making sure you will not stay that way. The problem is that I might not like the thing that he chooses to exterminate the me monster. Did you catch what it was? 
affliction. The furnace of affliction. He, he puts us in the crucible. He puts us in the refining fire. And it's even in the midst of that that He uses these difficulties to bring about these gospel graces in our lives. All right, so well, what do we do with that? Well, a couple of things, very briefly. I'll, one, maybe don't get so angry so fast when life gets hard. Right? Some of us, it's like, temper, others of us, it's depression, really like instantaneously. And to say, maybe don't have that response right away. Because the Lord's already told us, hey, I love you. I'm doing this for my own name's sake. Whenever you enter into difficulty, you need to be aware this is the primary mechanism that he uses to kill the me monster in his people. Maybe don't lose it so fast. Right? Don't get, don't get so discouraged so quickly. He hasn't forgotten you. He doesn't hate you. He's not punishing you. He's not being miserable to you. He's killing the me monster. Secondly, maybe don't fight against it either. Right? He loves you so much, he's going to win. Right? He loves us so much, he's going to win. So much of our journey between here and the grave, the joy and the delight and the, the, the fun, so to speak, is largely connected to how much we resist him. If I fight the Lord tooth and nail along the way, I'm still going to go to heaven because I'm his child. I'm still going to be made perfect. I'm his child. I'm just going to be miserable every step of the way. And I could do that. Right? Parents, you've watched this happen with your toddlers at some point. Right? They're, you're out doing something fun and the toddler just, they're done. They're, they're, they throw the fit. They throw the tantrum. They're laying down, flailing arms and flailing legs. You're dragging them by their foot all across the floor. They're determined to be as miserable as possible. And you're like, we're at a theme park. We're supposed to be having fun. There's good food. There's good activities. Why are you throwing a tantrum? There's a sense in which that's what we're doing with the Lord. Where when he gives us affliction designed to kill the me monster, we, like a petulant little child, throw the temper tantrum in the eye away. Maybe, let's not do that. Maybe instead, let's actively work to turn our eyes to him, to listen to his word, to look for his graces, to cultivate his peace, and to delight in his Redeemer. And then again, maybe one more thing, is in so much as we're able when we have the bandwidth to do so, maybe we come alongside others and give words of encouragement, a little bit of affirmation, a little bit of pick-me-up. We know that others are struggling either with the me monster or the affliction that God has given to exterminate that awful creature. Because if you're in that moment right now, you know it's not a fun place to be. And if you're not there now, you will be. And you'll need those words of kindness. That the Lord loves his people. He loves us so much that before the foundation of the world, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit agreed the plan of salvation, which shockingly would involve the death of his son so that all of his promises would be yes and amen so that you would know the me monster will die and you will walk with God forever. All of that 
securely in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We confess our sin. We do not like to hear about our sin. And we confess that even in hearing this, we really want to think about other people. And we ask that you would take your word and prick our hearts with that perfectly measured surgeon's scalpel to give us the right wounds to heal our souls. We thank you for Christ's sake. Amen.